Once upon a time, three movie fans went to college and took film classes. After graduating, they were each hired for very boring day jobs. But I took them away from all that, and now they podcast for me. My name is Charlie. Good morning, morning, Charlie. This podcast will contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. This is going to be long, hard, and rough. Sometimes when it's rough, I just get there fast. Listener discretion is advised. When we get started this millennium... Today we're discussing Charlie's Angels, starring Cameron Diaz, Drew Barrymore, Lucy Liu, Bill Murray, Sam Rockwell, Tim Curry, Kelly Lynch, directed by Mick G. This is the now playing co-host, always ready to get some action, Arnie. This is Marjorie. And this is the host who's either a crazy bastard or a crazy bitch, Jacob. Yeah, that was this film's tagline, get some action, a giant flaming A with three hot women on the poster. You mean maybe like two hot women and Lucy Liu? (laughs) I don't like Cameron Diaz. I just don't like her as a person. I have had interactions with her living out here in Hollywood, or at least her mom. Cameron Diaz don't say anything. Her mom, who is her handler, not a pleasant woman. Really? I always enjoy unpleasant celebrity encounters. They are super fun. But... I didn't really have this movie on my radar. I remember fall 2000. I knew it was coming out. Artie, you are the music guy. I mean, I'm no Destiny Childs fan, but this song was everywhere and it was associated with this film. I feel like I remember that song more than this movie. Oh, yeah, but I don't think it was a hit until after this movie came out. I mean, before this movie came out, I wasn't huge into Destiny's Child, but let me tell you, I did have this CD, the music soundtrack, after seeing this I just remember fall of 2000, Marjorie and I were dating, and Marjorie's like, let's go see Charlie's Angels. So I was like, really? Why? (laughs) But we went to our theater at the mall when that was still open and saw this movie. I did see this one in theaters as well. I had to look up when it came out because I'm like, this is either a holiday release or summer release because I was dragged to it with my family. When the family was together, we always liked to go to the movies. It's unfortunate what we get stuck going to because it's usually got to be more family friendly. And so this is what I got dragged to. I'm guessing around, it came out in early November. So this was our Thanksgiving movie, I'm guessing. You would see a lot of crap and you dragged me to a lot of crap. So I'm shocked that you weren't really into this. Yeah, with the three allegedly sexy ladies and all that. I do feel like this is geared more for men than women. Yeah, I looking at it on paper, I mean, I am a fan of Cameron Diaz. I've never met her mother, so I don't... <laughs> Wait, you're a Cameron Diaz fan? That's kind of weird. I certainly was back then. I'm sorry, but there's something about Mary just had me fall in love. Yeah, that was huge. I, I, it was. Yeah, we were supposed to all fall in love with her. I just never did. Even before I met her mother. <laughs> She's the exact same character, and there's something about Mary as she is in Charlie's Angels. I There were a number of films that I'd seen her in and liked. My Best Friend's Wedding, Very Bad Things. The Mask? Well, I'd seen it, her in it. I <laughs> can't say I liked her in it, but... It is funny to me how she became a star, because I'm looking for the breakout film. I think that had to be There's Something About Mary. She was working before then, but There's Something About Mary thrust her into the spotlight with that spiky hair. Drew Barrymore, 
I'd had a crush on ever since she flashed David Letterman in the 90s. Yeah, I guess she had her comeback with Scream, even though she's barely in that movie. It's probably the best scene in that whole franchise. I guess she was a working actress again by this point. Yeah, and she had started to do things with her own production company, which is Flower Films. She actually owns the rights to the Charlie's Angels TV series. That's how this actually got made. Drew Barrymore optioned the rights and got a script and was starting her own production company. I mean, she was popular again. You mentioned Scream. I do think that was a big comeback for her. I mean, you probably remember her as one of Two-Face's women in Batman Forever. Oh, yeah, barely. That's not a comeback (laughs) for anyone. (laughs) But after Scream, The Wedding Singer was a huge hit. Uh, Never Been Kissed. Didn't she do some Cinderella movie too? Ever After. Yes. So she started her own production company, which is why we got Donnie Darko, by the way. Okay, all is forgiven, Drew. She was in Donnie Darko. She was one of the teachers. That's right. She's still producing movies far more than she's starring in them. And she got this movie made. She even handpicked director Mick G. Now, Mick G is one who I can't take seriously because he likes to call himself Mick G. (laughs) Mick G ruined my birthday in 2009. (laughs) Did you meet his mother too? No, I met Terminator (laughs) Salvation, which I was so excited for. Came out the weekend of my birthday. I went to Vegas for my birthday. I'm like, nope, I don't care if I'm in Vegas. I'm going to see Terminator Salvation. And that is a pile. Oh, we'll never forgive (laughs) Mick G for that. I had to travel through time to give that one a red arrow. I know, I've heard. (laughs) (laughs) And it really deserves that red arrow. Ruined my birthday. I will never forget that. This is his first film. I now know him more as a producer of television shows like Chuck and Lethal Weapon than I know him from film, although I understand he's still making films for Netflix. But casting, you know, when you talk about this, Cameron Diaz, big star. Drew Barrymore, A, producer. B, big star on the rise. Yeah, that's a bigger get to me than Cameron Diaz. Though, I get, Cameron Diaz is big at the time. And then, I was always confused... Lucy Liu? The mean one from Allie McBeal? I had no idea she was in Allie McBeal, though I only watched an episode or two. But yeah, I know her mostly, I think, from the Kill Bill movies. And that came out three years after this. Was she anything at this time? I mean, is she anything now? (laughs) Well, now she's doing that Sherlock TV series on television, Elementary. I think it's coming to its end, but she's done that for seven years at the time. I knew her because she was brought in the second season of Ally McBeal. If you look her up, she did mostly television stuff. And she was briefly in Jerry Maguire. But no, this would, I think, be a big movie role for her and one that very briefly set her up to be a film star. Then she did <laughs> Ballistic X versus Sever, and that sent her right back down to television. Ooh, <laughs> I've never heard a good thing about that. Was there alternate casting? We always talk, there's always some fun what-ifs with a lot of films. Were there other people considered? Oh, yes. I'm guessing Drew Barrymore was always going to be in it, because she's producing. Well, actually, not necessarily. Early on, she was talking about just producing, but not being in it. But they did lock those two pretty soon. But with Lucy Liu, I always felt like one of these things is not like the other. One of these things just doesn't belong. Because she wasn't a name. Yeah. So I did some research into this, and they tried everybody in Hollywood. The first person offered it 
Angelina Jolie. Okay, that makes sense. That would have been a big get. You notice Drew Barrymore dyed her hair red. They were going back to the original conception. We want a brunette, a redhead, and a blonde. Yes, I complained about that with the pilot. It makes it so much easier here, especially since they're going to use different names. But Angelina Jolie said no, did a movie that I considered to be a spiritual twin of this one. (laughs) She went and did Laura Croft Tomb Raider instead. Then they tried to get Jada Pinkett Smith, who decided... She would do bamboozled instead. Ooh, okay. But then they got somebody. Who didn't sign the contract, because it's not going to be Lucy Liu. (laughs) Tandy Newton. She was signed. She was ready to do everything. And then what screwed that up? John Woo. If you remember, Mission Impossible 2 was the film that made Doug Gray Scott not able to be Wolverine. (laughs) Yep. Because he had to go back and do filming pickups, and so they had to bring in someone else, hence Hugh Jackman got the role. It worked out for him. Well, Tandy Newton was signed to do the third one until the Mission Impossible 2 pickups interfered, and they began a major hunt. Now who's it going to be? Asia Argento? Okay. <laughs> Ashley Judd? Posh Spice Victoria Beckham? Oh, dear God. Oh, boy. Halle Berry? Helena Bonham Carter? No, okay. <laughs> Jodie Foster? Jennifer Jason Lee, Gwyneth Paltrow? Tiffany Amber Thiessen? Uma Thurman? Kate so Winslet? Everyone in Hollywood. Every female in Hollywood. I don't think that this is an accurate list. I think this is, hey, wouldn't it be cool if so-and-so played it? I don't think that these people were actually doing screen tests or anything like that. I think this is just somebody's wish list. I think this is somebody called an agent and an agent might have said no, or the agent then passed it on to the actress and the actress said no. Or some guy just sat around and just said, hey, it'd be cool if someone played these. It just, I can't imagine you would approach someone like Kate Winslet with this at all. I can't either. Robin Wright Penn, Catherine Zeta-Jones, none of these really, Catherine Zeta-Jones might make sense. She'd done Zorro. Okay. Really, part of the reason some of these didn't get it is- Drew and Cameron went to McGee and said, listen, we want these angels to be friends. We want to have a third actress who can be our friend, not a third actress who will steal our boyfriend. Enter Lucy Liu. What, so they wanted someone like ugly? Like that wasn't a threat? (laughs) So not a girl power movie. (laughs) They just wanted someone I guess they felt they had good chemistry with. And so Lucy Liu is brought in, and that answers my question. She was not the first pick, because I couldn't imagine, unless she and Drew like hung out at after parties with Allie McBeal's tapings, I couldn't imagine how she got this gig. But She was cheap? She was. Cameron Diaz got $12 million for this movie. Drew Barrymore got $9 million, although, because she was a producer, $40 million. <laughs> yeah, she got those points on the back end. Yeah, $80 million for the sequel. Lucy Liu, $1 million, which is still a lot of money for Lucy Liu. I got to imagine like Bill Murray's going to show up in this. He got paid more than Lucy Liu, right? Yes. Although we're going to be talking about Bill Murray versus Lucy Liu a little bit. (laughs) Okay. I mean, but this cast does seem tailored for now playing, or you specifically, Arnie. I mean, Tim Curry, (laughs) Sam Rockwell, Crispin Glover, like these are exciting names for now playing. Well, first of all, Sam Rockwell is a chameleon. He really did deserve his Oscar he finally got. He, oh, he's amazing. I agree. Yeah. And I'm sorry, you can't disrespect Crispin Glover. No, I'm not disrespecting. I'm just saying no podcast is getting more. I don't know. Maybe there's a Crispin Glover fan podcast, but no podcast gets more excited for Crispin Glover than now playing. Let's finish the rest of his films. I interviewed him and he was interesting. Very nice mm-hmm. when met him in person, but... 
I agree. This is a cast of character actors that I do love. I wanted to look up Sam Rockwell because I tried to figure out when did Sam Rockwell become Sam Rockwell? Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> well, He's always been Sam Rockwell. <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Although, yes, <laughs> he does have a name that is just fit for a movie star, right? Sam Rockwell. He sounds like a 50 star. <laughs> but I looked him up and he would done a lot of different roles But I do think this was one of his first bigger roles. Even by the time he was doing Iron Man 2, I don't think he was a huge star. He was just somebody that I guess I was a fan of. The year before this, he had, I think, two memorable roles. He was Guy in Galaxy Quest. He was also one of the prison guards in The Green Mile. We'll eventually get to that film. I don't remember him in that. Okay. I think that Sam Rockwell was always the bridesmaid. In a lot of movies where other people gave stellar performances, and I'm not talking about Iron Man 2 or Cowboys and Aliens. I'm just saying that he's always in the background playing this really great character, and it wasn't until he had the right vehicle where people knew who he was. When he showed up in Vice as George W. Bush for like two minutes, like, (laughs) I don't even know if it's that long. He's amazing. He was the best part of that movie. Choke, not a great movie, but he's great in it. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, again, not a great movie. He's great in it. He always steals the scene to me. Here's a great movie that he's great in. Everybody should see Three Billboards Outside Epic, Missouri. Yes. Yep, that's what he won the Oscar for. And every one of his performances are as good as Three Billboards, though. He was nominated the year after for his role in Vice. Where's two minutes as George W. Bush. That's how great he is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he is an amazing actor. And then, yeah, Tim Curry, always a fun presence when he showed up. I mean, admittedly, what I could most recently remember him from before this movie was Mikhail's Navy. <laughs> He made the film watchable. (laughs) But then there are some really, like, 2000s choices here, like Matt LeBlanc's gonna show up, (laughs) and Tom Green. I haven't thought about Tom Green since the year 2000. Tom Green was sleeping with a producer. Yeah, I get that. Literally, in this movie, he's sleeping with her. Yes. And I guess in real life, too. (laughs) They were married for a few months after this film. That's right. Remember when Tom Green was a thing? Yes. That was so brief. I remember he had the Tom Green show on MTV. He had the number one hit on MTV with that butt song. And then he had Freddy Got Fingered and Road Trip <laughs> and this. I still haven't seen Freddy Got Fingered. I Either it's the worst movie ever or a genius piece of subversive art, depending on who you talk to. I'm going to say yes to that. <laughs> to both? <Okay>. Yes. <laughs> That's my feeling on it, yeah. Still to this day, every once in a while, we'll like, bust out like one line from it. Daddy, do you want some sausage? <laughs> it's so awful. But why Charlie's Angels in the year 2000? You know, I associate the around, you know, the 90s and the, we're getting the Brady Bunch movie, the Beverly Hillbillies. We're adapting TV. So was it just a, a matter of time till we got to this property? Yeah, I definitely think that's part of it is TV was coming around again. We'd had Beverly Hillbillies and Brady Bunch was a mild hit. That got a sequel, right? Yeah. Like, it was some kind of hit. Yeah, the sequel was not very good, but the first one was really good. And I, I wouldn't say a mild hit. I think that was like the one that ushered in a lot of this, especially the comedies. They even make a joke in this. They are going to have a fake TJ Hooker the movie on a flight and be like, another movie from an old TV show. They acknowledge what they're doing here. <laughs> but 
I also think it was just kind of the time. If you think back to the late 90s, early 2000s, the popular women's images in media were like Britney Spears in the schoolgirl dress and Christina Aguilera, Rub Me the Right Way, Genie in a Bottle. I mean, that was dominating media. And Drew Barrymore had a vision. She wanted to bring the angels back in the same spirit of the TV show. She didn't want to make it hard-nosed action. She didn't want to try to be serious. She wanted a fun, escapist jiggle fest. And no matter what you can say about this film, and we will, I think she (laughs) achieved her goal. Yeah, I'll just say I am shocked at the number of ass shots in this film. Look, I don't think they have great asses. (laughs) The only one with an ass is Drew Barrymore. (laughs) If you want this many ass shots, they're going to play Baby Got Back to get someone with back. I think they played Baby Got Back ironically, though. I I got questions about that scene, but we'll get there. Well, Arnie, why don't we see if we can answer some of the questions for Jacob about asses, and why don't you give us a plot summary? Are you calling me an ass? She's calling you an ass expert, (laughs) if you're going to answer my questions. (laughs) Charlie's Angels are three smart, tough, badass, sexy women. Natalie Cook, played by Cameron Diaz, Dylan Sanders, played by Drew Barrymore, and Alex Monroe, played by Lucy Liu. They were brought together by the faceless Charlie Townsend to work for him as private eyes, managed by John Bosley, played by Bill Murray. They're hired by Kelly Lynch's character Vivian Wood. Vivian's business partner is software genius Eric Knox, played by Sam Rockwell. Knox has gone missing, possibly kidnapped by business rival Roger Corwin, played by Tim Curry. Vivian hires the Angels to find Knox. Going undercover, the Angels are attacked by a creepy thin guy with a hair fetish, played by Crispin Glover. He leads the Angels to Knox, who was kidnapped possibly by Corwin, so the Angels hack Corwin's system to see if he stole Knox voice recognition software. But this was all a ruse. Knox believes his father was killed by Charlie during the Vietnam War. He used the Angels so he could take control of Charlie's satellite system, which, combined with Knox's voice recognition software, could trace Charlie to any location. Knox was partnered with Vivian and the Thin Man. They kill Corwin and try to kill all the Angels, even Dylan, who Knox had just bedded. They kidnap, not kill, Bosley to use his laptop to control Corwin's satellites. The Angels infiltrate Knox's base. Natalie rescues Bosley and fights Vivian. Alex fights and beats the Thin Man. And Dylan serves as a distraction, but then kicks a bunch of henchmen's ass. Knox escapes in a helicopter, ready to fire a heat-seeking missile at Charlie, but the Angels catch up by boat and rewire the missile to kill Knox. Mission accomplished, the girls sit on a beach with a recovering Bosley, and is congratulated by Charlie as credits roll. And before credits start, we get a cold opening starring someone I did not remember in this movie (laughs) at all, LL Cool J. Yeah, I don't remember a whole lot about this film. I remember Crispin Glover, he's going to drive a race car, and there's a scene that I remembered because of my mom's reaction when we saw this. But one thing I do remember is this really did feel like a Mission Impossible parody. We'll get the whole scene going into the server room and all that. So as soon as LL Cool J, I didn't remember him being here. I'm like, okay, that's one of the angels in a mask. Yeah, I just remember that Mission Impossible vibe on this film. It had the same makeup guy, too. I think there was some fun playfulness with those masks off the Tom Cruise film. And it might have even been reinforced by the fact that they lost their actress, Tandy Newton, to Mission Impossible (laughs) 2. Yeah, we're going to find out that LL Cool J is really one of the angels and what this guy's got a bomb strapped to him. So they got to get him out of the plane. But 
it feels like there's way more effort at times. Like, we'll talk about some of the green screen in this. But at times, it feels like McGee's working real hard to do something really Scorsese up this film. Like, we'll get this opening shot following LL Cool J around the plane, and it's like a single take, and you're seeing, like, you know, all these little, I guess, maybe funny moments going on on the side, like a couple going into the bathroom to join the Mile High Club. But they're putting way more effort than I would expect to do a, a Charlie's Angels film. It's cool that they f- do that single shot out of the plane. They jump out of the plane. They still haven't cut. Presumably, there's actually two cuts. They did a breakdown of this on the DVD. There's a couple of camera tricks, but it does make it look like a complete shot. That was McGee's vision. His first film? Yeah, he's going to have delusions of Scorsese, I guess, at the beginning. (laughs) If they really did that, that plane would crash. With the jump out the window? Yeah. Well, they opened the door. You don't open the door mid-flight. People get sucked out. Anything that wasn't, like, strapped in would get sucked out, and it would probably create a fluid hammer. (laughs) This is a fun opening. I mean, LL Cool J jumping out of a plane, and then somebody else jumping out of a helicopter. You come down to Cameron Diaz in a tiny bikini on a speedboat. In front of a blue screen. It is the worst blue screen ever. <laughs> like, at the end, they're going to be on the beach. I'm going to see him run into the ocean. I'm like, no, I still think that's a green screen. <laughs> like, they are not really on the beach. It looks so bad at times, even when they're in real locations. Is that intentional? Because when we watched the pilot last week, some of the set backdrops were real bad. Oh, yeah. There's obviously painted backdrops in that pilot episode, like embarrassingly looking painted sets. So I wonder, is this green screen stuff that just didn't translate well to video? Or is this intentionally fake looking because they wanted to bring some of that humor of the original show? I mean, this is a first time director doing a TV property. Yeah. I mean, and I bet it was a hard sell at ILM to say, well, I need the tits to jiggle in front of this blue screen. (laughs) This was almost a $100 million production. Really? Yeah. Wow, okay. So they had the money. Now, I already put, what, $25 of it towards salaries of actresses? Yeah, that's where it seems most of it went. But yeah, we get this cold open. It reminds me of James Bond's films because this bomb never matters. It's just to show us these women kick some ass and save the day. But you know what should matter? That mask. You don't bring this Mission Impossible style mask. You don't introduce that in the cold open to not bring it back at some point. I was shocked that they never wear a mask again to fool someone. The one place they could have used it now that you're bringing it up, it's never bothered me. But when they break into the place and Cameron Diaz and Drew Barrymore are pretending to be men with some obvious it's Pat facial hair. (laughs) Yes. Masks would have been more believable for that than what they had going on. But it's never bothered me because this cold opening does have very little to do with what comes later. I agree. It's just weird. Like, that is movie logic, though. You you introduce a mask in the first act. You got to bring that back. And especially because they are going to do so much Mission Impossible stuff. Is there really a place for it? No, it's just a gag, I guess, at the beginning that this big black man is really Dylan Drew Barrymore. Little white girl. More important to me than the mask is the stilts that had to have been involved for that. (laughs) Well, she had to have like a whole bodysuit because he's a big guy. Like, look, I got a lot of complaints about the wire work and the green screen, but I'll give him Drew Barrymore could be LL Cool J. (laughs) My question is, is this a parody? Is this a parody of Mission Impossible and the action films of the time? The wire foo that was becoming popular and the John Woo style? Do we judge this as an action film? The tagline was, get some action. Or is this 
just supposed to be a comedy, a fun comedy where taking it seriously and wondering about Chekhov's mask is overanalyzing. Yeah, I would never say to take this film seriously. I don't think the film wants the audience to do that. I do think this is more, it's, it's an action comedy. I, we'll be talking about Jackie Chan later with Rush Hour for platinum level donors, but I do feel like you watch Jackie Chan, like his best Hong Kong films, they are comedies. Like you think of them as doing crazy stunts and kung fu, but they're action comedies. You're supposed to laugh a lot of the time at them. And I feel this movie is working in that same realm where it's supposed to be more funny than adrenaline charging. But I think the adrenaline is there when they jump out of the window and Motley Crue's live wire starts playing. They're really bringing in a lot of heavy metal, glam metal, dance music, fast paced, up tempo stuff to get your adrenaline going. Yeah, we're going to get Progeny smack your bitch up. I'm like, wow, that's taking me back to uh, the turn of the millennium. (laughs) But so much of this music, just because we're talking about it, like it does feel like they had a database of songs and they just typed in keyword angel. (laughs) If it had angel in the title, they probably used it in this film. (laughs) Well, of course. Why wouldn't you? They do it repeatedly. Like when Prodigy does come on, I'm like, wait, this doesn't have the word angel in it. I'm shocked they're using the song. Wake me up before you go-go. I love rock and roll. I want money. I think they're kind of building off what Drew Barrymore had with The Wedding Singer, aren't they? Going back to a lot of 80s hits. Yeah, we're going to get Barracuda in this. It's all over the place. And from this cold open, we then have the TV opening with Charlie giving his monologue of three bright, talented young women, and we get to see how different they are. Drew Barrymore was a punk rebel with a broken arm smoking in the bathroom and flipping off the camera. And Cameron Diaz was a dork with braces who drove on two wheels and won a bunch of money on Jeopardy. And Lucy Liu, I can't figure out. She's an equestrian astronaut. She's rich. Yeah, she was rich. That's the way I took it. She's a rich, spoiled, pampered person. Yeah, and I'm thinking specialties. Like, each girl's got to have her specialty. I'm kind of thinking this is telling me, okay, the stunt driver, I don't know, someone that's good with horses, and a rebel. Like, they don't really go into specialty territory here, which is weird because... Alex, Lucy Liu's characters, seems to be the computer demo expert. Like, she's the one cutting all the wires and hacking. Yeah, I think that they have specialties that just aren't all that well-defined. They all can fight. They all can go undercover. They can all show off their bodies to distract the enemy men. But I do think Alex is more the techie, and Natalie is more the driver, and Drew Barrymore is... Maybe it's because she's the producer, but I kind of feel she's the leader, too. She's the one planning the ops. Yeah, and I also thought she was more into the different logistics of things, too, you know? She's also the tomboy, though. We'll see them go to a drive-thru. She'll be like, three burgers, three fries, three shakes. What do you want? You know, I think she's supposed to have that kind of energy. Whatever woman you like, whatever fetish you have, one of these three (laughs) should fit it. Yeah. Blonde, brunette, redhead, white. Uh, Cameron Diaz, Hispanic. She's got that last name. Uh, She's actually Cuban. Okay. Latin. I'll I'll put it that way. Asian. Yeah. It's got it all. Like leather corsets in this, everything. But I do wonder about Dylan's like story arc in this. Like we'll see Natalie. She's dreaming of being a dancer and she's really kind of a klutz in real life. And Alex has issues with her boyfriend, Matt LeBlanc, who's a struggling actor. I guess he'll always play Joey, but he's a 
struggling actor and she's having a hard time like revealing who she really is. I don't really know what Dylan's story arc is here. Like she sleeps with Sam Rockwell. We get a little bit more of her backstory in part two and I kind of got the feeling like she just didn't get one. Either Drew wanted to focus on the others or they were saving something back. I didn't know if they knew they were getting a sequel, but we do get more of hers in the second one. You have blown my mind that you remember the second one. I do not. I'm like, what? I've never seen the second <laughs> oh one. Oh my God. So. What do you guys want to know about it? I can even, I haven't even seen it recently. It's probably been uh, sometime this year. When it comes to Charlie's Angels, recent is a much different <laughs> measurement for Marjorie. It's a matter of weeks. <laughs> I think the arc is very vague, but it has something to do with Tom Green, or as he calls himself here, the Chad. The Chad, Which yeah. would be so in the news. We would be, when this movie came out, about three weeks before a hanging Chad was all over the news. I was wondering, yeah, where this lined up with the hanging Chads. I'm like, is this an election joke? But I guess it was right before that. Spoiler, I think they were divorced by the time the second one came out, and there's no Chad in the second one. Just like there would be no Tom Green career in three years. <laughs> But at the beginning, she's like makeup smeared, waking up in the Chad's boat. And he's like, was it the food? Was it at the end? He's like, was it the Chad? And I think it might be the Chad because he keeps calling her starfish. And she goes, yeah, it was the Chad. Later on, though, she's going to say the Chad is wonderful after sleeping with Knox and realizing she's attracted to the wrong kind of guy, maybe? <laughs> maybe. Okay. Maybe she's realizing she needs to settle down with a nice guy who cooks her breakfast, not the kind of hot guy who shoots her out a window. But none of them have arcs per se. The character development here seems to be around them. Much like the TV series, you're supposed to, I think, be able to come in in part two and not have a lot of questions about part one. I mean, Cameron Diaz loves to dance around her apartment in boy pants in the first scene and loves to dance in front of people midway through the movie. Let me ask you a question about that scene, because, yeah, she's dancing around in her underwear. She dreams about being a 70s do the hustle type dancer. I, it's, it's weird. <laughs> I think she just wants to be in big dance numbers. I mean, she did that in the mask. She had a big swing number, but uh, maybe she's pining for those days. She's a dancer. Yes, that's right. She is a dancer in that one. Well, she's a dancer in real life. I think that helps with a lot of the wire yeah, work here. Yeah, yeah, she's a dancer. She's a trained dancer. Okay, I was not aware of that. This film, when it comes to its level of jiggliness or sexiness, and I feel like it's going to really work for a 13-year-old boy or a 13-year-old girl who's into girls. I don't want to exclude anyone. In this day and age? It worked very well for a certain 25-year-old boy. Okay, yeah, but the, okay, I, I can see that working for a 20-year-old. I just, watching it now, I'm like, when I think about, and look, th these are just weird, false memories I have of the original Charlie's Angels. We talked about it last time. I, I watched that pilot, and I watched a couple episodes when I was a kid, but my impression, it, it was just, had a little bit more sophistication, sophisticated sexiness, and this is like, hey, you could stick something in my slot anytime, and it's like, uh, this is the kind of humor we're doing. This was like a really weird time where we had There's Something About Mary, which I think brought women into acceptable body humor. And this was an extension of that. It just happened to be Cameron Diaz. But it was this time period where it was like, oh, it's okay. Girls can make dick jokes and still be funny and cute and sexy. And that's where it gets with hers because she's body. She's allegedly sexy. And she's completely oblivious to saying things like that. She's supposed to be the dumb one also in this. Yeah, no, I get that. Like, she doesn't realize she's making these sexual innuendos. She's not 
dumb per se because she won Jeopardy and she is described as brilliant by Charlie in the opening. But she's dumb. She's the blonde. When it comes to men, she's not articulate. Yeah, she's unaware that she's turning men on and she's unaware of what to do when she finds a guy and wants to turn him on. She does not know how to use her sexiness as well as the other two. Whereas Lucy Liu apparently knows how to use her sexiness but doesn't know how to use her oven as the repeated joke here is that she can't cook. To the point where she's going to be making a souffle and my wife is just like, when's it going to fall? Let's get to the joke. (laughs) But yeah, she's making rock hard muffins. Like we see this muffin get tossed through a wall and she's disappointed people won't eat them. Have a little self-awareness. Like if your muffin is going through drywall, you shouldn't be eating that. And that's what I'm saying. Like, okay, these are jokes, but they're not very sophisticated. They're aiming very young, it feels like. Oh, there's not sophisticated humor or anything in this movie. Absolutely not. I think a lot of the humor comes from bringing in a comedic actor. While all of our actresses have done comedy before, they've all also done some drama and things. But bringing in Bill Murray here, who is known for his comedy. To me, he's the biggest star in this film. I mean, Cameron Diaz made a lot of money, but she was an up-and-comer. Drew Barrymore had been famous, then wasn't, and was coming back. We've already discussed Lucy Liu. But Bill Murray is a huge star to play Bosley. Yeah, I don't know where he was at this point in his career. I hear now he just has like a phone line and you have to know a secret number to call him if you want him to do a role. That has always been the case. They didn't even know if he was going to show up on Stripes. Oh, really? Okay, he's always been a prima donna then. Unreliable. He'll say he'll do your movie, but leave you hanging. And when you start filming, you're just crossing your fingers he's going to show up. That's hilarious. That was the case here, too. They, like, had somebody else in the wings in case Murray didn't show up to play Bosley. Who do you hire as the standby for Bill Murray in case he doesn't show up? Joel Murray? (laughs) Brian Doyle Murray? Nah, I I can't remember who they had, but I do remember McGee discussing sweating it out at this time. And he was doing a bit more posh films. Rushmore had come out by this point, and that was seen as a big career turner for him yeah Rushmore was I think a big one and before that the last thing I think I'd really paid attention to him in was 96 Kingpin the Farrelly Brothers I know you guys love that one I do love that movie but it was after this he gets more artsy next year Royal Tenenbaums and then a couple years later Lost in Translation he gets tricked into doing Garfield you know But here, I was most excited going into theaters to see him. Oh, yeah. He's always consistently good in everything he does. And here, I kind of like his blasé attitude. He's the one man in this movie who does not care how attractive or sexy or scantily clad these three women are. He's like a father figure. Yeah, I do like that he kind of plays it that way. Like, we'll get the three girls and, hi, Charlie. Like, they're doing that sex appeal thing, I guess. That's actually straight from the TV series. All the angels every episode. Yeah, I know. I get it. Just when these three do it, it just sounds more Valley Girl to me than anything. It's their delivery. But yeah, I like that Bill Murray's version of Bosley. And maybe it was like this in the TV show. I don't see Bosley hooking up with Farrah Fawcett, that, that actor. <laughs> no. But yeah, that he's kind of aloof to like their looks. 
And one thing you may not notice, I didn't until I was seeing the bonus features. This is intended to be a continuation of the Charlie's Angels TV series. Is that why no one has the same name? Because that confused me. I'm like, okay, which one? Is Drew Barrymore supposed to be Farrah Fawcett? It can't be Cameron Diaz. She doesn't have the hair. She barely has any hair. Luke Wilson's got more hair <laughs> in this film. When they tell Cameron Diaz to do a hair flip, I'm like, she got to have hair to do a hair <laughs> flip. But yeah, none of them have the same name. So this is the next generation. Yeah, there's a photo behind Bob. Bosley of the original Angels there. And they even did this set to be just like Bosley's office from the TV show with the thinking of Charlie sent down a decorator and said modernize it. They even still have a television that comes down from the ceiling the way that slide projector did in the pilot. Still got that speaker box. Yep. So they really look at this as continuing the story. And that's why they get John Forsyth back as the voice of Charlie, giving them their mission just like he did week after week on the TV show. And this mission seems pretty straightforward. We talked with that pilot. We weren't quite sure what the mission was. No, this time, software guy Eric Knox is missing. The angels immediately think it's his business partner, Vivian. No, she's their client. She's worried about Eric. And they think the bad guy is Tim Curry. And why wouldn't Tim Curry be your bad guy? I mean, he was it. <laughs> and he was the bad guy in Mikhail's Navy. He'd kind of gotten a reputation for playing bad guy roles. Yeah, he plays a good slime ball. Like, we'll see him at the beginning here. He's going to Madame Wong's to get some massages. Do you think Madame Wong's is a happy ending kind of place? Yes, because that's what he alluded to. <laughs> if Tim Curry's going there, definitely. I'm just confused why Madame Wong, look, I don't want to get into stereotypes. That's probably a Chinese name. And then we got Lucy Liu yelling bonsai, which is a Japanese word. We're getting our cultures mixed up here. Good point. I didn't put that together. <laughs> I don't think this film really cares about that. We'll see lots of cultural appropriation going on. And Lucy Liu is American. I mean, so she's, I guess, doing her culture no favors or just having fun with it. But yeah, she dresses like a geisha to give this massage, but she's certainly not going to play to the Asian sexy stereotype as he wants her hands on him and she's going to jump on his back and twist her heels so that he passes out and... I do like the innuendo, I could use someone like you on my staff. My hands aren't going anywhere near your staff. Made me laugh. It's a groaner. Yeah, I feel like everything that should be sexy or titillating here just doesn't do anything for me. It skews a little too young. I think this all goes into your there's a fetish for everybody in this movie. I'm waiting for my fetish then to show up. <laughs> For me, also, I can be propelled by a great soundtrack. I'm going to put a capital G great oh, on I the soundtrack <laughs> because seeing all three of them dressed as geishas, which is hysterical to see whiter than white Cameron Diaz and Drew Barrymore in that garb while turning Japanese is playing. I just They know exactly what they're doing there. I'm having fun. Each song is something that's making me smile because most of it is songs I haven't heard in a while. Now, they are going to bring in some 90s dance pop later on, but here it does seem like they're pulling deep cuts from the jukebox. And through this, I'm not quite sure how it happens, but they go from stealing a copy of Corwin's key to being in a car with a printer that prints an enhanced photo of Crispin <laughs> Glover. I wish... This felt more tug-in-cheek than just lazy at times, because, yeah, when they're like, look, there's a reflection in the rearview mirror. Computer, enhance. 
I'm just like, really, we're doing this. We're doing the computer that's going to enhance the image that would be so pixelated, but it's going to come out crystal clear. It's Crispin Glover. I mean, I reminded Arnie that when this movie came out, it was a big effing deal that we had a four megapixel camera. <laughs> oh, I remember that when you could get up to four megapixels. Yeah. That was, yeah, almost photo quality. Right. <laughs> it was huge. <laughs> but isn't this giving you what you want, Jacob? You complained in the pilot that there weren't enough spy gadgets, a car printer that can enhance pixelation. Yeah, no, I don't mind like the car printer. It's just the enhanced computer enhance. I, I just go back to that Blade Runner scene that goes on for about 15 minutes <laughs> where he keeps enhancing. I, if this is just going to be a Mission Impossible parody, then that's fine. Not another Mission Impossible movie. I don't like those kind of movies. If it's going to have some fun and a, a sense of style of its own, but also, you know, poking fun at what Tom Cruise did, then I could get on with that. I just feel like there's a very inconsistent tone and style throughout this film. I hate to agree because... I'll put my cards on the table. I love this movie. And so it's killing me to see its flaws. But these kinds of movies, I expect there to be things that go, oh, come on. It's stupid fun. If it wasn't skewing for such a young age with the humor, then I could get on board with that. There's plenty of times where it's tongue in cheek. It's poking fun at the genre conventions. I could get on board with that. It's that this one feels like a Mad Magazine parody. And I love Mad Magazine. I loved it when I was 12, though. And I've tried reading it. Well, it's not around anymore, but I tried reading it in my later years and it just never came off as funny. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you on Mad Magazine. Here, they go to this party Corwin's having, and they take Bosley along as a self-help guru who's rich enough to get into the party. There are subplots in this movie that I enjoy watching, but yet narratively, I don't see why they're there. Why is Luke Wilson at this party as a bartender, and we're going to see Cameron Diaz smitten and then follow them on their first date to go nowhere? Yeah, I don't understand why this whole scene turns into a rom-com all of a sudden with a joke about Bill Murray and Tim Curry putting on inflatable sumo wrestler suits. I think the Luke Wilson thing was there because they're trying to show you they're still girls, they're still feminine, they still have their lives, even though they're these worldwide spies and everything. Their shirts are always unzipped to their belly button. I'm well aware that they're women. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fair enough. But yeah, I agree. It's just each of them has a relationship story. But we said that the characters don't have an arc. But of the three, it's Dylan's relationship that's going to matter to their mission. I think what they're trying to say is that Dylan sleeps around. Yes. Okay. I think so, too. And here we're just going to have scenes of Cameron Diaz with Luke Wilson. We mentioned that Natalie Cameron Diaz is the one who doesn't know how to use her sexuality. The women have to tell her to do the hair flip there and... She makes a date with him. But the sumo wrestling is, again, what tells me this film is a comedy. Think about what Drew Barrymore had been primarily making. Never been kissed. The Wedding Singer. Pretty broad comedies. Which is fine to make this a comedy, but is this a funny joke? <laughs> they cut the less funny one before the sumo wrestler. The contest they had was a game of Marco Polo in a swimming pool where they splashed each other with water, Bill Murray and Tim Curry. Wow. Okay. I'm glad they're having fun on set. <laughs> It did look like the actors enjoyed it, but it also was pretty silly. No, no, everyone is smiling throughout this film. I think McGee threw a great party for the <laughs> cast here, and it is on screen. I will not deny them that. 
you know Bill Murray, you can't keep him to script. He's going to do his own thing. Tim Curry's able to keep up with him, and yet the action does continue here. Lest we have too many jokes before we get to the action, all of a sudden, Natalie is going to see Crispin Glover smoking a cigarette with his hair looking like he walked right out of the 50s Back to the Future scene. That's kind of just what his hair looks like. Crispin Glover is great. Like, the way he just stands when he's smoking a cigarette, just let me watch him for 90 minutes. He is a fantastic villain because I think he just takes the script and pisses on it and does whatever he wants. He doesn't say anything in this whole film, right? That's his whole thing is he got the part and then went to McG and was like, I don't want my character to talk. I want to cut all his lines. I want him to be silent. So he had lines. Yes. And then he's like, and I want him to have a hair fetish. I want him to rip women's hair and sniff it. See, I love all that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Mix G and Drew Barrymore were both like, go with it, Crispin. Just go with it. And it honestly, I think he is one of the reasons this movie is very memorable to me. And this movie is one of the reasons I like Crispin Glover as much as I do is because he is so weird and he is so ironic and action star. I mean, you would never expect to see Crispin Glover do wire foo and flipping over fences. Well, yeah, we're going to get a big chase and then they're going to face off the thin man, I guess, as he's called. He never gets a name either. No lines, no name. Creepy thin man. Yes. He's going to face off against the angels and we're going to get some wire foo. I think he looks pretty good doing it. And look, I don't want to blame any of the actors. I think this is on the director making this wire foo look good. Maybe that wasn't the point, though. Maybe they wanted this to look like wire foo, but it, it's pretty amateur looking to me. But wasn't it kind of the style of fighting? Yeah, like Jackie Chan will use wires. It, when I'm watching the scene, I'm like, okay, that was probably a wire, but there's a way to sell it. And these are actors that who are not martial artists. They probably spent a day training to do this choreography, so... They spent three months. Three months, okay. <laughs> you know what? Doing this wire work, I kind of think the wires do all the work. I'm actually impressed with how much they still have to do. The wire lifts them up. Oh, no, you have to do a lot. Yeah, they still have to activate their core and be able to do flips on their own and things. The wire just suspends them, but they have to do a lot of the moving and things, and I think they do pretty well. Now, John Woo hates this movie because he said- There's no doves. <laughs> there is a dove. I actually think they parody John Woo later on during the car race. There is a dove. Oh, that's right. There is. There is. <laughs> but he said that this movie had obvious wire work, which made audiences laugh at wire work and unable to take it seriously. Yes, that's exactly it. This whole movie is responsible for that. <laughs> this is coming after where I consider the American breakthrough of wire work, The Matrix. I think The Matrix looks better. I mean, we had Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, I think, around this time. And that is known for its wire work because it's just people flying around on the tops of trees. There's a way to shoot it. There's a way to bring that physicality about. And look, these are not martial artists. And uh, McGee, this is his first thing, not an action director. There's a way to go about doing this. I guess it's fine. It's passable. But it is funny. Like, I do laugh at this because it's not the greatest work. McGee would go on to make the show Chuck, a show I really enjoyed. And it would employ the same kind of thing there where you have this nerdy guy who would go on to play Shazam, Zachary Levi, and <laughs> he would be doing wire work and all of these stunts. But constantly he had this look on his face of, oh my God, I'm able to do this. And it was supposed to be silly. Here, I think it's along that same vein. It's supposed to be a bit of a joke that these women who have seen so far to be very feminine. They all have their relationships. One of them's trying to bake. They're flirting with guys. This is our first time seeing that they can kick ass. And I think it is supposed to be highly stylized. I think this is what he intended to do. Now, whether you 
wanted what he gave you is the second question. Yeah, it does not engage me on an action level. I'll say that because I feel it's like a little subpar. And like Cameron Diaz, I know I'm hating on her a lot, but like every time she stops to do this pose, it's so exaggerated. I'm like, they had to have like a series of like Bruce Lee poses and she'd pick one. She's got those like legs spread apart doing these stances. It just, again, feels a bit too posed, a bit too on the nose, like with the music, all that at times. I enjoy watching the choreography. Again, I'm going to just admit my bias. The music's carrying me a lot. It feels well <laughs> choreographed. It feels... Look, yeah, Smack Your Bitch Up. I like that song. So I, despite the wire work, it's got Crispin Glover. It's got Prodigy. So I'm going with it. Crispin Glover with a cane sword. Thank you. Yes, no, I agree. <laughs> like that, he is saving the scene for me. He is really an underrated actor. And I think he gets a bad rap a lot. People are like, ooh, the weird guy. But that's what makes him fabulous. Yeah, no, I agree. But we're at the end of Act 1. One. Somehow the thin guy led them to a locked door and behind it was Eric Knox all tied up and they wonder, did Corwin steal his software? So we're going to put on half buttoned race car outfits, show off our cleavage, lick a steering wheel. Thank you. <laughs> oh, that's so gross. <laughs> when they find Eric Knox, doesn't that give the whole plot away? Yes. Like again, I don't I've seen this, but I don't remember much of it. And as soon as they found Sam Rockwell, I'm like, oh, okay, so he's the bad guy and he's setting the angels up to get this from Tim Curry's character, Corwin. It just tells me everything. Oh, it blew my mind, that plot reveal in the theater. <laughs> I was like, whoa. I couldn't believe that they twisted it because I was so convinced Tim Curry was the bad guy. Tim Curry's always the bad guy. Tim Curry's a great bad guy. They've been investigating him for so long. I was convinced that it was going to be him all along. I guess I wasn't thinking about it very critically. I mean, I'll be honest. When Drew Barrymore is sitting in that car with the air conditioning blowing on her, I'm not really thinking. I'm just enjoying. <laughs> yeah. Somehow they get on a pit crew. Like, that seems like it'd be very hard to do. And then they have their hair down. Put that stuff up. You're going to get it caught in a spoke. That's an OSHA hazard right there. They all got their jumpsuits unzipped to their navels. I'm surprised they didn't fall out when she's in that scene with talking to the Bentley driver. There had to be tape, right? There just had to be tape. Yes, there's yes. tape. That's how you keep that the way it is. And there, there's these little invisible adhesive things that you put underneath your boobs to keep them up. It's like an invisible bra, and then you have the fabric tape to keep it there, so you just like give a peek of it. This is why we needed a woman on the show. <laughs> is it wrong that I like it when she licks the steering wheel? It's kinda, it is kind of gross. It's gross. I just, Like, the driver's not even into it. He wipes that thing off. Well, that's because it's Corwin's car. <laughs> He's afraid of getting fired, but... Yeah, they plant a camera on Corwin's car. I'm, again, not entirely sure how that helps the plot, but we get another action scene here. Every time Crispin Glover shows up, it's my favorite scene in the movie. Here he shows up. He's got the red hair because he ripped some off of Dylan <laughs> earlier. He's rubbing it all over himself. Yeah, I would have never thought I'd see Crispin Glover, you know, I expect him to be some creepy weirdo and, you know, with rats and Willard or whatever. But to see Crispin Glover driving a race car, that does not seem like in his wheelhouse. But yes, pun intended, but apparently it is. <laughs> yeah, he was very much an all around just kind of henchman, you know, he could do many different things. But again, suspend reality. Just enjoy the movie. Oh, no, I'm all for it. Like whatever Crispin Glover wants to do, let him do it. Yes. I love the blatant patriotism that Natalie is chasing him in an American flag Formula One racing car. I mean, remember, this is pre-9-11 Freedom Fries America, yet just 
this all-American Cuban girl chasing after the car with the red star on it. U.S. versus Russia is certainly implied. And I like the editing there, where they go past the cars, and it's like a car is passing, but it's his car, her car, his car, her car. It's just, again, kind of fun. And Yeah, I think this is one of the better shot action scenes, this car chase. And this is where the dove comes in. They face off on a yes. bridge, <laughs> and the dove flying away seems to be their moment to realize they need to play chicken. At first, I thought, I'm like, oh, well, the thin man, he's dead, right? Like, he fell off that. There's no way, but he's going to come back. I guess it's just to get him out of the scene. It shows a victory, and it makes you wonder if he's dead. When he comes back, it's supposed to be a shock upon a shock. But you think they lost their lead here. But they found out enough that they have to go undercover. They have to break into Red Star, Tim Curry's company. To do that, they have to get a fingerprint and a retinal scan, leading to... One of the most head-scratching fun scenes. I'm just laughing because it's ridiculous. Yeah, I get the angels being belly dancers. That's fine. But the angels, <laughs> including Lucy Liu, as these little German girls singing while Bosley's there with a fake mustache and a tuba. I get what they're going for. It's just not, I'll just say, it, it's not working for me. It's supposed to be silly. It's supposed to be sexy. It's just mostly silly to me. This is where it just yells out loud that we're going to do Mission Impossible. Like, we're going to break in to get the knock list. We're going to make it even more ridiculous. They got to get, it, yeah, the eye scan and the fingerprints. And if you stand on the ground more than a quarter of a second, you set off the alarm. Yeah, and something about you have to be invisible going through one room. Look, this I remember chuckling at when I saw it in theaters because, yes, it is so over the top. And I still think it works if you know, especially that first Mission Impossible movie because that's what it's riffing on. I think this is a pretty good joke. We'll even have Vivian say when she hears this whole plot, like, that's impossible. <laughs> Nothing is impossible if you put Lucy Liu in a dominatrix outfit in a room full of <laughs> geek programmers who want free coke. Apparently. And apparently Melissa McCarthy has always played the same role. Like, I saw her name in the opening credits. I'm like, oh, this is before she was anyone. Like, she wasn't on SNL in 2000. I don't believe you guys would know better than me, but... She wasn't. Actually, I told Arnie she was in this movie, and he didn't believe me until this scene. And I'm like, watch, wait, and see. And it is Melissa McCarthy. Doing the Melissa McCarthy thing. Yep, this is <laughs> what she does, absolutely. Although I think she was also attracted to Alex in that dress by the end of it. She starts off by calling her a bitch. <laughs> At the end, she's following Alex around with all the guys. I think we're supposed to see these angels can seduce everybody. Anyone, yeah. Maybe. They're yet to seduce me, but maybe we'll get there by the end. They do get into the room. We get to see not Cameron Diaz do some backflips. Well, when puts on that white suit, I'm like, that actress has a butt all of a sudden. That can't be Cameron Diaz. <laughs> And I'm sorry, you can't touch it for more than a quarter of a second, then don't do handsprings. Like, you gotta, like, balance yourself and put your weight and the push off. Like, just run really fast across it. Like, do big leaps. It wouldn't be as impressive, though. You are right. It just comes off kind of silly. Yeah. Yeah, it does when I think about it. I'm just not supposed to think about it, I don't <laughs> no, think. No, you do not think during this film. What I find funny, like, they gotta hack into the server because... Red Star has voice DNA, like you could identify anyone with just their voice. That's Knox's software that they th wonder if Red Star has stolen. But Knox did this voice DNA that's, yeah, unable to be faked. So Knox made the software. I guess Red Star has the satellites so they could actually use it? Yes, that's exactly what's happened. So okay. they needed access. It was all a ruse to get the angels so they could get access to Red Star. Oh, I know, because once they say voice DNA, I'm like, oh, okay, they want that to find Charlie. Yeah. Here's where 
I should have caught it, though, because Knox and Vivian are together again. They're like, oh, we want access to the system. Oh, that would be unethical. Only Bosley has access to the system. Well, I guess Bosley's getting kidnapped now. <laughs> I do wonder how many days Bill Murray was on the set. Enough to fight with Lucy Liu, but he doesn't have a huge part here. But we get this interlude where... You know, they've gone undercover. I call this section where they go under the covers. It's all about <laughs> their dating. We just stop the plot and we're going to see Natalie go out with Pete. And I didn't even know Soul Train was still on. Is it still on now? <laughs> I don't think so. And I get that they want females up on the stage to dance, but she's the only one and she's white. I associate Soul Train more with African-Americans. Like I'm thinking back to when I was a kid and watched that. It was not a whole lot of white people. No. And it ended in 2006. All right. So it was going on at this time. But that's the joke, Jacob, is that I love it when she gets up there. She has no ass. She's dancing to Baby Got Back. The irony is dripping. And in her mind, everybody is enjoying it. But then you get to see the third person omniscient cut where you just see all of the African-Americans. The music has stopped and they're just all staring like, what is she doing? That is my question. What is the joke here? That she's a white girl dancing on Soul Train, that she's someone with no butt dancing to Baby Got Back. I thought the joke was going to be they were going to cut away and she was dancing like Elaine Bennis on Seinfeld, but <laughs> she keeps dancing the way she's dancing and then they get into it. So I don't even know what the joke is. The joke is, and it's not really a joke, it's that she's likable, she's lovable, she likes to have fun, she has no shame. She's having the best time of her life and wins everyone else over, which is, I think, we're supposed to get out of the character because she's goofy. She does lack self-awareness. That's what we see in every single scene, whether she's answering for the UPS driver in underwear or dancing on Soul Train. She lacks self-awareness, but she's so pure that nobody's going to judge her for it. They're going to start chanting, go white girl, go white girl. She's lovable. Allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> and then the scene that is less impactful is Alex baking the souffle, getting ready to tell Jason that she is a spy, reveal her true identity, that she is not a sexy bikini waxer. Yeah, you get this scene where at the same time they're all with their men, they're also having assassinations attempts put on to them, and some guys are going to drive up to that trailer. How they know she's there, I don't know. But they shoot it up, and she does that move where she like spreads her legs and arms out so she could stick to the ceiling and not get shot. They try to fake us out, because we see the scene with Jason with a woman at a table having a conversation, and then somebody does a drive-by shooting, and the woman dies, and... Jason screams up to the sky like Wolverine, no! Yeah, once he does that, you know it's a movie set. I would guarantee you if they were going to shoot Lucy Liu in this movie, you'd see her face instead of Mike LeBanc's. But they want to fake us out. And, and here's my problem. Like, okay, we're going to shoot up the trailer and the souffle is going to fall and then the trailer is going to fall in half. Nothing seems fresh here. I, I get that they're going for this humor, this cheeky tone, but it just feels like jokes from the 70s. Like, I don't know what's fresh to grasp onto with this film. To me, what was fresh, although, spoiler alert for the movie Scream, <laughs> Scream did do this first, but I was very shocked that we find out Knox is a bad guy because they're going to have a romance there. And it shocked me when they did it in Scream, it shocked me when they did it here, that... 
the woman slept with the guy who was evil and it was all a false pretense thing. Well, she's got to sleep with them because we got more data dump to go. We, we got to expand Knox's motivation a little bit more. Something about his dad <laughs> being shot in a war. And in a photo, you can't see his dad's partner's face who supposedly shot him. I'm like, well, okay, obviously it's Charlie because we're not showing the face. Yeah, I figured that one out too, even the first time because of the face. But it says he worked military intelligence and he was killed by someone there. Yeah, here, pretty much, if you're thinking about it, you know what's really going to happen before Vivian even shows up. Vivian had been off seducing Bosley. I mean, even Bosley's getting some play. Which I think is funny. Yeah, Vivian's trying to seduce Bosley. Like, something about a glow-in-the-dark dress? I don't... Maybe that's a fetish. Maybe that's sexy. I don't know. I don't want to see a glow-in-the-dark dress. That would be weird. Just a floating torso. To me, I think she's fulfilling the MILF fetish, but... Bill Murray's like... Gilf age at this point. I get that, but I'm saying if you want to see a sexy older woman versus the sexy stars of the film. But she shows up and knocks. I love Rockwell in this film because his acting there, he just transforms from nerdy programmer to completely cool, suave bad guy. Oh, whenever Rockwell does Little Dance, I'm like, best movie ever. Yeah, I mean, to the Marvin Gaye song, it is perfect. Him and Crispin Glover make this movie. This is like one of the best scenes, I think, ever in a movie where he just does his dance. He puts on his jacket. The right music's playing. The way he takes that drag off the cigarette. There's just, I mean, and yeah, he does the splits. The character turn and his performance wowed me. I'm going to say wowed me as much as any cleavage when I saw this film in 2000. (laughs) And then the thin man just comes out of nowhere, too. They're all in on it together. Were they watching them or something? Yeah, because they've obviously had sex because Drew's going to walk out with the most elaborate bedsheet Mm -hmm. toga tie up. Like, I'm like, well, that's basically just like a dress at this point. (laughs) Like, that's you can't do that with a sheet. And she's the one who we think actually gets it. We see that at the same time. Natalie is attacked in the bathroom at Soul Train as she fights him off and puts a boot to his neck and he says Vivian told him to do it. And Alex, as you said, she hid in the roof and escaped the bullets. But Natalie gets shot and falls out that window. This scene I remember because in the theater, not when she gets shot, but like when we see her hanging there naked, my mom just lost control laughing. Like where she almost fell out of her seat. It was like embarrassing. She was laughing so loud. Like the whole time Drew's hanging there and then falls (laughs) down and rolls down the hill and then grabs the inflatable pool toys to cover up her naughty bits to go talk to those boys playing like my mom. Mom lost it. And so whatever I think of this film, I'll always have good memories because it brought my mom just some incredible joy for this scene. And a bit of trivia, the house she goes up to where the two boys are playing video games and having the perfect conversation for this movie. I've seen a lot of boobs. Have not. Have two. That is the same house where they shot E.T., And so they put an E.T. poster up on the wall. So you have Drew Barrymore knocking (laughs) on the house that she acted in as a little girl. Only now she's all grown up and naked. Oh, that's a fun gag. And in case anybody thinks, Marjorie and I were talking when we watched this movie. Is that Tony Stark's house? (laughs) That is the Hollywood Hills, yeah. Well, if you take a Hollywood bus tour... There is a house that they'll point at you and say it's the Tony Stark house, or they'll say it's the house that Sam Rockwell used in Charlie's Angels. 
Neither of those houses are real. I hate to shatter illusion. Those are all CGI houses. Oh, man. There's a house similar in the Hollywood Hills that inspired both of these. Yeah, there's a famous house like that that I've seen. So I just assumed they, I'm sure it gets rented out all the time for movies. So I assumed it was that. Yeah, it's probably cheaper just to build one CGI, if, especially <laughs> if you're going to have people fall out of it. Is it a cheat that they rewind the film and do it? I mean, isn't that what they did in Funny Games? Yeah, in Funny Games, they just like straight up talked to the audience and rewind the movie. This, it's just a stylish way. Again, McGee, maybe because he's a first-time director, we're going to take some Scorsese. We're just going to pull from everyone that he likes and do a lot of weird mishmash styles. And this is one of them. Like, let's go back and see how she's actually still alive. And get some bullet time straight out of the Matrix, including the yes. <laughs> shot of the bullet rippling the air around it as it travels towards her and yeah we see she falls out the window but is hanging there nobody bothers to look for a body and then yes yeah, she falls down naked and your mother loses control yes <laughs> <laughs> and the three women reunite at the agency it blows up too that same agency that had been in use since 76, it's gone, but Bosley is just captured. The three women need to knuckle up and go save the day. And who do they need? They need the Chad. Because they need his boat. They're totally using him for his boat. Yeah, they need a boat, but they can't use a speedboat because they got to be undercover or something. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, because a speedboat would get there too fast, whereas a big tugboat. And that's the thing, like where they say they have to go in California is a six hour drive on land from LA, taking a boat. Boats, unless you got a speedboat, not going as fast as a car. But I guess time is not of the essence here. No, but this is where the whole plot is kill Charlie, avenge Knox's dad. I don't know how much he spent to get Vivian on board with this, although we're finding out Vivian is sleeping with him. And the thin man, he never speaks, so we never know his motivation. He is just <laughs> like odd job from Bond. And we get in there and they break in we get the showdowns. Alex goes to the roof to try to stop the transmission from the call from Charlie, but she fails because she's attacked by the Thin Man. And Dylan is, I guess, red herring because she allows herself to be captured and Knox reveals his evil plan before leaving her with henchmen and... Natalie's off to save Bosley and fight Vivian. But she gets a call from Pete and wants to see her again. You're supposed to like be really excited. It's funny. It's fun to see in the middle of this, she considers Pete as important as rescuing Bosley and saving Charlie's life. And she is the smart one. She's the one who knew the bird she heard over the call from Bosley that tells them where they are. Yes. And again, another bit of bodiness because it was a nuthatch. It was supposed to be funny. Is it? Yeah, she got excited about a nut hatch. Because it's nuts? Yeah, nuts. Oh. I didn't even get that as funny. Truth is, it's not a pygmy nut hatch. It's a different kind of bird. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> well, now we know who the real bird watcher is. It wasn't uh, <laughs> Bosley in that pilot film. It's Arnie. It's whoever wrote the IMDb trivia section. <laughs> During all this action at the end, you know, we got the three girls, they each have their action piece. The one that gets me excited, I'll, I'll say I got titillated a little bit, is we got Drew Barrymore. She's tied to that chair. You know, she's got her legs spread out. She's been able to get those free. She's got them spread out to hold the guys back. And then she's like, okay, I'm going to tell you exactly how this is going to go down. I'm going to break your nose and do this and do that. And then I'm going to moonwalk out of here. And then, again, not the greatest kung fu wire work here, but it's passable. But the fact that she said she's going to moonwalk yes, and she just yes, walks backwards. Yes. Fuck you, me. 
Nick G, you couldn't find someone that could moonwalk and just cut to their feet? This is awful. I cannot forgive the film for this. I think it's her shoes. I think the boots she's wearing, you cannot moonwalk in. And so she just does this backward dance. But yes, it bothered me in theaters. I'm like, that ain't no moonwalk. Oh, so upset about it. Oh my God. (laughs) The other thing I find extremely annoying besides that moonwalk is we're told that Knox has voice DNA. So he's tracking Charlie. He's, you know, they got him on the phone. I, again, love Sam Rockwell. Like, Bosley? No, no, still waiting. Hold on. (laughs) And like he's just sitting there because you know they got to track this call and trace Charlie's voice. To me, voice DNA means on the screen. Okay, Charlie is this person. Blah blah blah. No, it's just going through the satellite system. It's just doing a phone trace basically and finding where the phone location is. I'm thinking, which is a problem during this movie. <laughs> but yes, <laughs> I'm thinking that what this means is he has now got Charlie's DNA. And while he's tracing his current location, if Charlie were to move, they'd be able to use that DNA to track the satellite wherever he is without having him on a direct call. But yeah, here, you don't need voice DNA when somebody calls up, I'm Charlie. Okay, hold on, Charlie. I'm tracing the call. I mean, I've, I've seen that in a lot of police movies. They've never need voice DNA yes. software. <laughs> but it's a step away from what Nolan would do with the Dark Knight, right? <laughs> Many steps, but yes, (laughs) a step is involved with a lot of other ones. And what happens with Vivian and the Thin Man? We don't see them again. They are beaten by the angels and fall down at the castle. And then Knox comes up and fires a missile right there. The angels live and we never see the others again. Okay, that's why I don't, it's this movie so ADD, because we'll see Sam Rockwell show up in a helicopter with missiles. I don't, look, maybe Mark Zuckerberg has this kind of military hardware because he's a super rich tech guy. I don't know. It seems kind of specialized, but we'll see Sam Rockwell's character shoot a missile and... It's left ambiguous. They don't close the loop on that. I can't imagine Vivian would ever come back, but I guess they do wonder maybe Crispin Glover was so good they might want to bring him back for something. Why wouldn't you? Because he is good. And this gets us to the action-packed climax of the helicopter boat chase. Well, maybe the action-packed green screen. It's taking me back to the beginning of this film. Like, I could tell when there's men with wigs hanging it on a helicopter and when it's Cameron (laughs) Diaz and Lucy Liu and Drew Barrymore in front of a green screen. Yeah, it was pretty bad in this. And, you know, I'd like to think that today's CGI would really improve it, but it's probably not going to. I feel like this is what he was going for. Mick G. Look, when Tarantino does this kind of thing, like in Pulp Fiction with Bruce Willis in the backs of that taxi, and it's obviously rear screen projection, like he is going for a vibe. Doing bad green screen, is that a vibe we're going for now? Is that an aesthetic we're all pining for now to feel like we're back in the day? For me, the best ending of this film comes in the tower fight where the bell falls and almost hits Vivian and the thin man. The thin man's my favorite villain, so that's going to be my favorite fight. Yeah. When the angels get on the green screen speedboat and Lucy Liu's screaming, I'm going to win the teddy bear while shooting an arrow to create some kind of rope they can scale up to the helicopter. You know, the movie has a benefit. It is only about 90 minutes long, so it does not wear out its welcome. But here at the end, I'm ready for the end. I just want to say that you said that line with as much conviction as Lucy Liu did. (laughs) Yeah, it was a pretty good impression. It was. It was pretty good. Yeah, it got kind of arduous when they got to the bell tower or whatever you want to call that thing. And then afterwards with then rerouting the 
missile. That's the point where it gets a little long, I think, because it's short on the comedy. Yeah, it's Drew Barrymore punching Sam Rockwell while Lucy Liu, what does she do? Is she like activating its heat-seeking abilities on this missile? Rerouting it so that it shoots the helicopter. I thought that's because she turned on the heat-seeking. She's ripping out some wires. I mean, yeah, I mean she's yeah. ripping out some wires. And it says something about heat-seek and that helicopter's got more of a heat signature than Charlie does in his little bungalow on the beach. Mm-hmm. Even the last scene, I think, is one of the weakest scenes in the movie with that, after they get this all solved. and Yeah, they all come out on the beach and they're laying there and I guess they just don't go anywhere because the next scene, they put on bathing suits and are at the beach and... <laughs> Having a phone call with Charlie, just like the TV series. But they want to know, when can we see you, Charlie? Just like the TV series. Dylan is going to look off in the distance and realizes, hey, I'm the producer of this film. I'm the one who gets to see Charlie. <laughs> but she's not going to tell her friends. They didn't list an actor for that person. I, there's no way is John Forsythe. That, he was like 80-something yeah. at this point walking down that beach. But I thought maybe, you know, IMDb, they find out all the uncredited actors somehow. and But I couldn't find any listing for who this actually was. Aaron Spelling. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> He's even older than John Forsyth, I think. <laughs> but we get this end scene, and and all I can think about was, I know movies aren't usually shot in order, but at what point did Lucy Liu and Bill Murray throw punches at each other? Yeah, I'm really curious about that, too. Yeah, what is the story here? You keep hinting at it. Okay, during the filming of this movie, they're doing a scene. Bill Murray breaks character looks at Drew Barrymore and says, I get why you're here. Oh, shit. And looks at Cameron Diaz and says, and this one can act. (laughs) (laughs) Then looks at Lucy Liu, but what is she doing here? She cannot read her lines right. That's really mean. (laughs) (laughs) I'm guessing it's on film because nobody yelled cut. It wasn't on the blooper reel that we'll see during the credits. (laughs) No. And apparently people had to restrain Lucy Liu, who was flying punches at him. They should have filmed that fight scene. It would have been the most realistic looking one. (laughs) And Drew Barrymore and Cameron Diaz both were like, we're getting the fuck out of here and ran to their trailers (laughs) while Lucy Liu went ballistic and McGee had to deal with it all. That is one of the funniest things ever. I feel bad for laughing, but she can't act. (laughs) He's right, but... I mean, he he complimented Cameron Diaz's acting, so I don't know how right Bill Murray is. Well, that's true. I I guess, yeah. And also from rumors from the set, Mikuji himself claims Bill Murray headbutted him on set. (laughs) (laughs) I would do the same to McGee after watching this. (laughs) Now, Murray, his exact quote is, that's bullshit, that's complete crap, I don't know why he made that story up. He has a very active imagination. Then Murray continues, No, he deserves to die. He should be pierced with a lance, not headbutted. Just double down on it. Way to go, Bill. That's why we love you. <laughs> so no headbutt. Stab McGee with a lance. That's what Murray said as recently as 09. <laughs> still bitter. Yeah, he's still like harboring that grudge, I see. <laughs> And asked about Lucy Liu, all he'll say is he'll dismiss you completely if you're unprofessional and working with him. So I guess he's implying Lucy Liu is unprofessional. No. Yeah, but apparently Bill Murray is an asshole. We already talked about how he won't get an agent. He may not show up for your movie. Not to tell tales out of school, but what his wife said in divorce court was he allegedly beat her. 
Oh. And that man. he's a drunkard. And oh, no, I, I definitely, like, I love Bill Murray, but there's a dark streak there. You could see it in his films. I, I do believe he's a drunkard. She said he's an alcoholic and a marijuana addict. Ooh, he smokes weed? <laughs> well, that would make you less likely to punch you then. Thank <laughs> you. I'm like, I can't see those two going hand in hand. I'm so stoned on weed, I'm gonna punch you. No, that, that might be crack, cocaine, <laughs> not weed. Weed's gonna make me, I'm so stoned, I'm just gonna lay here. It's crazy on the reefer. Oh my God. Now I just have a whole different view of him. Yeah. So I can't say who's right and who's wrong. What I can say is Bill Murray said during and after this film, I will never work with Lucy Liu again. When it came time for the sequel, he told McGee, it's her or me. Next movie. Different Bosley. Yeah, I did look up the cast list for the next one and to see if he was coming back. And, and nope, we'll have a new Bosley. I guess the Asian boobs outweighed the man boobs on who came back for the <laughs> she sequel. She has no boobs. <laughs> but yeah, when I see them playing in the beach there and the helicopter shot, I'm like, she's keeping her distance from Murray. <laughs> you know, is she a good enough actress to play like she's having a good time with this guy who insulted her in front of everybody? No, no, she is not. <laughs> if so, he's wrong. But that was the big behind the scenes gossip. I watched several scenes, like the scene with the Chinese throwing muffins where she snuggled under Bill Murray's arm. And I'm like, oh, this had to be before he insulted her, right? <laughs> that, was, that was first day of shooting, yeah. <laughs> but before we start throwing things at each other, Marjorie, Jacob, do you recommend Charlie's Angels 2000? Marjorie. Hell yeah, I do. I mean, this was a really great movie. It's stupid. It's fun. The only difference between this and like something like Fast and Furious or A-Team is it stars women instead of men. And we don't get dumb action movies with women a lot at all. I don't think. Tomb Raider the next year and yeah. I didn't really care for Tomb Raider. It was so... I'm not saying it's as good. I'm saying okay. it's a dumb action movie. I mean, I think they knew what kind of movie they were making and it worked. It does get a little tedious at the end when they get to the bell tower, but it's still a stupid fun movie. It's something to put on, you know, watching TV, maybe have some popcorn with it, or even when you're doing stuff around the house, like vacuuming or cleaning. It's something to have on. It's a good familiar movie. I really like the Charlie's Angels franchise, and I think this is really good. I recommend it. Jacob. I want to like this franchise. I really do, and I know I had a lot of complaints in this one. I guess I'm just looking for... I don't know if more sophisticated is the right word, but just more tonally consistent. And I do feel like McGee threw a great party, and that is on the screen. You know, despite a fistfight between Lucy Liu and Bill Murray, it looks like everyone's having a great time. But for me, I guess it comes down to the humor, and that is always very subjective. And there's not enough camp here for me to buy into some of the cheesiness with the bad blue screen effects and not enough sexiness to make these innuendos really fun to hear. They're just very obvious, and that's where it just kind of breaks down and fails for me. It does a lot of things, but it doesn't really do any of them that great. But I could see the entertainment value here. For me, there are three angels in this film. Crispin Glover, Sam Rockwell, and Bill Murray. Like, <laughs> they all have at least one great scene that I really enjoyed them in. But that's a problem when this is supposed to be about girl power and the female action stars. I just don't find them very interesting. I don't think this film has a lot of ambition, so I can't get too upset at it. But it is a weak not recommend. This movie was a lot of fun for me as a young man, and it's fun for different reasons for me now. 
Is it a great movie? Absolutely not. But I can't deny it's infectious, fun, every time I see it. And I do watch this not as often as Marjorie. When I say I haven't seen it recently, I mean a few years. It's a good music video for you, right? It is. And actually, I did see, I was channel flipping like a month and a half ago, the Soul Train scene was on. And I'm like, oh yeah, I'm going to watch the funny Soul Train scene, and I'm going to watch some of the rest. And then the climax came, and I'm like, I actually turned it off after, and that's kicking your ass. (laughs) I watched that part of the movie just for pure fun. I think this movie is fun. I think the acting is exactly what it needs to be for this movie with Crispin Glover, Bill Murray, and Sam Rockwell bringing even more than the film needed. But man, if nothing else, this movie's worth watching for Sam Rockwell's dance alone. That scene right there should get it a recommend (laughs) if the steering wheel licking does not. It's a fun, big budget film that surprisingly, I remember it being a hit. It barely broke even in the States. It cost $93 million. Well, yeah, they had a huge budget. That seems like a lot of money for this kind of movie. In the States, it made $125 million. So that's not a huge... Yeah, with marketing, that's break-even, maybe. But what country propelled this? It was a big international hit? Yeah, it was. It was all the countries together. It made $150 oh, okay. million for a combined total of $270 million against $93 million. That's tripling the budget. So, yeah. Three years later, we'd be back with the Angels again. But we won't be back for another two weeks because Charlie's Angels cannot not be interrupted. (laughs) We got men's movies to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) Last week, we had Rambo Last Blood. Next week, Joker. I'm looking forward to that movie. I'm so excited for it. It looks like the Joker movie I always wanted because it's dark. It looks bizarre. I mean, it's Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, I'm super excited about Joker. I'm not only excited for the movie, which looks like it's going to be really good. I'm excited because we are going to see the movie in New York with some of our listeners. We are having a listener party in New York City where we're going to be getting together at a pub beforehand, having a drink, maybe a snack, and then heading over to see this in 70 millimeter. All the details are on our Facebook page. We have an event on the page for the Joker screening. We hope anyone in town for New York Comic Con like we will be, or who just lives in the area. I hear there's a few people who do live in the New York area. Hopefully you can come out and watch Joker with us in 70mm. So we'll be reviewing that next week, and then the week after that, we'll be back full throttle with the Charlie's Angels sequel. And in between this Friday, we are finishing the I Am Legend bonus series for our silver donors with the review of the eponymous movie, Will Smith's I Am Legend, the third adaptation of Richard Matheson's novel, but the first one to actually use that title. That review comes out Friday, and then we jump into the last of the silver level reviews as we lead up to Zombieland Double Tap. So Marjorie Jacob, thank you for joining me. Talk to you in two weeks, next week with Joker. Till then, all the angels are going to heaven. Well done, angels. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks, Charlie. It's been a pleasure. I hope to work with you ladies again, but not too soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing. Outstanding angels. If you enjoyed this show, you can help us out by leaving us a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your other podcast store of choice. Charlie, 
I've really enjoyed working on this assignment. <laughs> and I eagerly anticipate returning to work. Want to hear more reviews like this one? You can find hundreds of other movie reviews at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Isn't it amazing how much information you can learn off of the internet? In our archives section are over 800 reviews. Listen to our hosts discuss horror, sci-fi, comedy, action, drama, and more. How'd that feel? Because it looked like it felt really good. That felt nice. Plus, you can hear reviews of every movie based on Marvel or DC Comics. You know how superheroes have these secret identities? You're an action star. I get a lot of action. A new, totally free movie review podcast is posted every Tuesday. So come back each week for another new show. Daddy, I wish you could watch us work. You'd be so proud. I mean, you can't even imagine the positions we get ourselves into. <laughs> when I get back, I'm going to give you a full blow by blow. Now Playing relies on listener support to keep operating. Sabrina, why can't I ever come out ahead of the bank? <laughs> I think you have to put in more than you take out. Ah, is that the trick? Well, it helps. You can support Now Playing by joining our Podbean crowdfunding campaign. Backers can get early access to reviews, unedited reviews, exclusive shows not available anywhere else, and more. Details are at nowplayingpatron.com. You know, I signed that release waiver, so you can just feel free to stick things in my slot. At our Podbean site, you can also support the show by listening to any of our donation shows. Series like Planet of the Apes, Jurassic Park, Phantasm, Jaws, and others are available for a small, one-time contribution. I just got so excited. When it's big like that, I just love to ride it hard and rough. The way I was getting pounded, I'm going to be wet for hours. You can also donate to us directly on PayPal. Details can be found by clicking the banner at the top of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. I got to say, Helen, I've never wanted you more. Always wanting what you can't have. Want 375 more Now Playing reviews? Get the Now Playing book, Underrated Movies We Recommend. Arnie, Stewart, Jacob, and Marjorie reviewed 125 different movies, each getting three recommends or not recommends. The ebook is available now, and the print book will be shipping soon. Find details at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash book. I see my brother ain't checked the books in quite a while, huh? We have a book. You can also follow Now Playing on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. There, the hosts post new episode announcements, movie reviews, and contests, where you can win movies and soundtracks. Also, subscribe to us on YouTube for original video content. I have something you'll never have. Watch that. Friends. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. I'm sorry, friend of Starfish, but there's only one captain of this love boat. That captain is me. Associate produced by Jason Latham. Hey, I like that guy. Now Playing is edited by Arnie. Don't worry, he's going to wake up. Unless he doesn't. Now Playing credits read by Brock. I can't tell you how many hours I've spent lying in bed trying to put a face and a body on that voice. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. You said what? Over my dead body. I can accept those terms. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. You're very good. 
With your hands. I could use someone like you on my staff. Thanks for the offer. But my hands aren't going anywhere near your staff. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review, and no infringement is intended. You crazy bastard! I think you mean crazy bitch. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of, and may not be used without the express written permission of, Venganza Media Incorporated. Sandra stuff. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2019, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. And that's kicking your ass. Tone Loke, or I don't know why I keep thinking he's Tone Loke. Tone Loke. I don't know why. <laughs> tone Loke's much deeper voice. The funky Cole Medina. <laughs> I mean, come on. Told- anyway. <laughs> and Cameron Diaz was a dork with braces who drove on two wheels and sneezed. Yeah, I thought they were telling <laughs> us what their special- Sorry. Oh, you're talking about you because you're about to sneeze. But it was after this, he would really go a different way. Year after this, Royal Tenenbaums, speaking of sex, a couple years later, Garfield and Lost in Translation. Wait, (laughs) speaking of- One of these things are not like the other. Speaking of sex, was it a movie or is it the Garfield movie? I'm confused. (laughs) He did that because he thought it was the Coen brothers. Oh, I've never even heard of this movie. Garfield? No. Yeah, Gar- I thought you said Speaking of Sex. Was that a movie? Did I say Speaking of Sex? What did you say? Yes. yes. Okay, yes, there is a movie called <laughs> yeah, Speaking okay. of Sex. Yeah, okay. I, I'm, I'm, I just assumed that was a movie I hadn't heard of. Yeah, I haven't heard of it either. And then, I, then I'm then i like, well, maybe he was saying Speaking of Sex Garfield. I'm like, <laughs> You want to fuck the cat? Yeah, that's like what? a different Garfield than I thought it was, but all I, right. I have no idea why I said Speaking of Sex. That is a movie starring James Spader and Megan Mullally. <laughs> Ooh, that sounds like a really weird movie. And Nick now. Offerman. Well, okay. <laughs> He's doing Nick Offerman, and I, and I get it now. Okay. <laughs> is, it, is, it, is it Megan and Nick just fucking on screen? Because that seems like what that would be given those two. But it's going to come out crisp, crystal clear. <laughs> Crispin it's clear. Crispin Glover. <laughs> yeah, Crispin clear. I, I got tripped up on that. <laughs> Is Alex baking the souffle, getting ready to tell Pete... No, getting ready to tell... I don't even know his name. I don't know, Joey? Yeah, I, I, Matt, <laughs> Matt LeBlanc, LeBlanc is such a bland actor anyway. I don't even know his name, and I've seen this movie a hell of a lot of times. Getting ready to tell Gibbet, uh, Jason that... Gibbet? Who's Gibbet? Jason. Jason yeah. Gibbons. Oh, okay. The three women need to knuckle up and go save the day. Knuckle up? Well, I can't say man up. No, it's just really funny. (laughs) Truth is, it's not a pygmy nuthatch. It's a different kind of bird. Out. (laughs) 
Well, now we know who the real bird watcher is. It wasn't uh, <laughs> Bosley in that pilot film. It's Arnie. It's whoever wrote the IMDb trivia section. <laughs> Yeah, if anyone's going to identify that bird, it's the IMDb trivia section. <laughs> There's probably some guy really ticked off about it, too. Oh, I love going to IMDb trivia whenever I'm watching a period piece, because they'll be like, those tires weren't invented for another three years. Yes. <laughs> You're telling me this is 1967? <laughs> no, sir. I love downvoting the shit that's like, this person also starred in a movie with this person, who then starred in a movie with another person who went back to this movie. It's like, that is not trivia. That's bullshit. Yeah, it's just, it's like Drew Barrymore starred in a film with Adam Sandler, and Adam Sandler... He's been in a film with everyone, so <laughs> it doesn't count. Yeah, and Adam Sandler did a film with 50 Cent, and 50 Cent did a movie with Cameron Diaz. I don't know if that's I don't, yeah, much true. The, the trivia, the Kevin Bacon game is not good trivia. No, I downvote all of it. I actually log into IMDb just to say, not helpful. I gotta say, my favorite, my climax for this film, that came out wrong. Yes, it did. <laughs> I, you've climaxed many times, I think, by this point. <laughs> At the racetrack, specifically. <laughs> <laughs> That's that that steering wheel licking. I mean, right there. I'm not going to lick the steering wheel in our car. I wouldn't want you in the Iron Man car to lick that steering wheel. I'd be like that guy wiping it off. Like, oh my God, the saliva is going to ruin the leather. <laughs> you got to put a red wig on first anyway. Oh, that's true. Blonde wig. Blonde wig. She had a blonde no, wig on. Yeah, she had a blonde wig on over oh, the red wig. Oh, that's right. They had wigs on at this time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So Marjorie Stewart, thank you. Uh, it's Jacob. <laughs> I got the. I got the. Oh, I, didn't I, got even, the I didn't even catch it. <laughs> <laughs> That's because I usually go Jacob Stewart. I yeah. went Marjorie 